So as Stephen says, uh, I'm a Dharma sister of Gills in uh, the lineage of San Francisco Zen Center. Um, my root teacher is Les Kay from Kanando in Mountain View. And uh, I also work with Blanche Hartman, who is currently the abbess at Zen Center. And I, I first arrived at Kanando in 1984. Uh, and I had this very strange feeling, which I'm sure many of you have when you first uh, came to spiritual practice, which is a feeling of coming home. It's like, oh, at last, something that makes sense and speaks to my heart. Uh, but in all honesty, I was very surprised by that response. Uh, I didn't know I'd been looking for anything. Uh, I had spent many, many years uh, studying the various philosophies in the world and you know, gleaning little bits of truth. You know, I'd read something and think, oh, yes, that makes sense to me. But I didn't actually feel that I was looking for something in particular. Uh, but every now and then, these various books I read said something about Zen master so-and-so or this meditation practice. And I finally thought, well, if all of these people have found it helpful and important, maybe there's something here. Uh, so when I first arrived, it, it kind of hit me over the head, and I was very excited. You've probably all had that feeling of, of sort of the honeymoon period of practice where you're just so excited and you, you almost can't sit still, which is kind of ironic. Um, and so I remember at one point after about six months where I was still in that first flush. I was pretty young, you have to excuse me. <laughs> of going to my teacher and saying, okay, so what's next? What do, what do I do now? He looked at me kind of funny. He says, what do you mean? This is it. <laughs> Meditation, the sitting practice. That's, well, yeah, but I've been reading these books. And, and he finally stopped and he said, well, what books have you been reading? Well, I had been reading this one book which talked a lot about various people's, you know, bell and whistle enlightenment experiences. And that was that sounded really great to me. <laughs> so he very kindly looked at me and he said, hmm, well, have you read this one book by Trungpa Rinpoche called uh, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism? I, I was cut to the core because I realized that I was doing to spiritual practice what I had done to everything in my whole life. I was materializing it. It was one more thing to get. It was one more star on the chart, one more place to succeed. And I was really humbled, humiliated, mortified, because fortunately for me, my teacher saw right through where I was stuck. You see, I came to get something. And I think it's a common idea. I, I think when we do anything, uh, our training, especially in this country, is that we're going to get something from it. Well, there's a wonderful book. If you haven't read it, please, please go find it. Very easy read, but some great wisdom. By this woman, Marion Derby, who was with uh, Suzuki Roshi in the early days. And in fact, you might know about Haiku Zendo, 
Suzuki Roshi did um, his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, came from lectures that were given at Haiku Zendo, which was actually Marion Derby's garage. And she wrote a book called The Zen Environment. And in that book, she used a phrase which has um, never left me about uh, your old hometown. Your old hometown is where you mostly live. This is uh, your old habit behaviors, your old egocentric view of the world, and it is the thing that you take with you everywhere you go. So you might think that if you go on vacation, you get to leave your troubles behind. But we all know that that is not the case. We take who we are with us. So she talked about practice meditation practice as leaving your old hometown. Now, that was a little different than my experience of, of this feeling of coming home. That coming home was coming home to, to this true self, to this inner uh, perfect being that we all are, to the, the Buddha in each of us. But the old hometown, that's our egocentric self. That is the self that believes that the universe revolves around moi. So in order for us to really begin practice, we have to understand the difference between our true home or what Aiken Roshi calls our original dwelling place uh, as opposed to this old hometown of our old habit behaviors. So there's, in, in Zen practice at least, and I'm sure in Vipassana, uh, I know that there is a forest practice. Uh, home leaving or renunciation is a, a very important, almost core part of the practice. In Zen practice, this would usually culminate in uh, you know, taking the ordination of a monk which Gil has done, but Gil has also done the forest practice, so he's actually had two renunciation practices. But the word renunciation brings up all kinds of you know, connotations, and, and it's, a, it's a big word, and it often has things to do with religious practices that we left, that we don't want to hear about. So home-leaving seems like an easier way to understand it. But I looked up the word renunciation, I wanted to find out, because it sounds a lot like annunciation, which comes from my Catholic background. It's Latin for proclamation. Now that renunciation can take place personally, privately. You make a proclamation to yourself that you're going to practice. Or you can make it into a public event where you have your sangha witness with you or your family. But when I looked up the definition of renunciation, I was very interested. The first one is the act of disowning, almost rejection. And the second is the giving up, formally or informally, of a right a claim, a title, and often at a sacrifice. 
So I started thinking about this, and I thought, well, what is it that is given up? What is it that we disown? Mm. Well, traditionally, in the old days and in the original practice, even in my lineage, uh, when a monk was newly ordained, he or she gave up her home. They gave up family life. Uh, They gave up livelihood. They trusted to the generosity of the community. And in Japan, there to this day, is a very um, accepted practice of what's called takuhatsu, which is the begging practice of walking down the street with an empty bowl. And there's a chant that you do. And as you're going along, people will stop you, and you bow, and you say a little prayer, a little chant. They put something in, either money or carry a bag around your neck for rice. And, uh, and then you say another verse of thank you, and you go on. And it's understood that both the monk is receiving something and the person who is putting something in the bowl is receiving something. There's, in a way, no separation of who gets something here. Everybody gets something. But that's only one kind of renunciation, and it's actually the easiest kind. In, in his new book, uh, Being Upright, Reb Anderson says that the first step in renunciation is finding out that we have something to renounce. And what we have to renounce, actually, is our delusions. It's actually pretty easy for me to give up my material possessions. It might even be easy for me to give up my family life. In fact, for some people, I think it's probably very easy. But for me to give up my cherished beliefs, my closely held opinions, my this is the way it's always been and this is the way it's always going to be kind of ideas, to give those up, ooh, that's, that's something else. So there are two examples I'd like to give. Uh, one is a monk and one is a nun, both of whom have very extensive and 30, 40-year practices, um, what they said about renunciation. Uh, the first is Bhikkhu Niano Savano in, in a book called Landscapes of Wonder, which uh, your Dharma brother Peter Medina gave me at some point and is a wonderful book. And he said... Many people of conventional opinions probably look on renunciation for religious purposes as a bizarre rejection of valuable opportunities in life. Others of romantic temperament, I really love this, dream about being a saintly wanderer with an alms bowl, beatifically meditating in scenic spots with good weather. I mean, you know, when you think about yourself going off someplace, isn't that sort of the idea you have in mind? You're going to find this beautiful Bodhi tree, and you're going to sit under it with your little kusa grass and your blanket, and there aren't going to be any bugs, and it's not going to be humid, and it's not going to start raining or hailing on you. Both sorts, he says, misunderstand renunciation, which is a rational discipline, a kind of work that begins with the thoughtful householder and reaches its fulfillment not in the external dress of a monk or a nun, but in the mind 
purified and exalted by wisdom. The crucial renunciation is the mental one. The determined effort to get rid of wrong views and wrong habits, not merely the physical act of taking to the woods. Then the other person is uh, a nun, Tenzin Palmo, Tibetan nun, who spent many years alone in a cave in the snow. And she wrote, I mean, this is somebody who gave up everything. She lived way out in the middle of nowhere, and I think she didn't see anybody for two years at a time. If one thinks about renunciation, it is not a giving up of external things like money or leaving home or even one's family. Genuine renunciation is giving up our fond thoughts, all our delight in memories, hopes, daydreams, our mental chatter. To renounce that and stay naked in the present, that is renunciation. So both of these individuals are people who have spent long periods in isolation and from the external point of view have given up materially a lot. But both of them say that's the easy part. The hard part is what each and every one of us does right here in our lives on the peninsula. You know, it's not about going away to a monastery or going on a trek to Nepal. Spirituality is right here on your cushion. Renunciation happens right here in this moment. So there's a great story of a real misunderstanding of this exact point. There's this very famous monk who lives far away in the, in the hills, and he has this wonderful reputation being a real holy man. And he's all alone, and he hardly eats, he hardly drinks. So there's this other monk who says, Ooh, this sounds like a good guy. I think I think I should go check him out. So he makes the long trek up the mountain. It's very far away. So it's a very long trip. And when he finally gets there, sure enough, here is this monk sitting outside of his cave in deep meditation. And the second monk says, Oh, Master, it's so good to see you. I've, I've come to, to find out what it is that you're practicing. And the first monk says, oh, I am practicing equanimity. And the second monk kind of leans over and says, oh, yeah, two old guys like us, we can get away with that kind of BS. What? Get out of my life. And he says, oh, where's your equanimity now? You know, it's all fine and wonderful. We're in retreat. Things, everybody's quiet. Everybody's being so nice to us. All is well. Then somebody comes along and they say one little thing and our equanimity all goes to hell. Where is it now? It's important to go away and have your spiritual retreat. It's equally important to be here in the world. Because at that spiritual retreat, 
we are all trying very hard to be mindful. But when we go out in the world, very easy. Just between when you leave here today and walk to your car, you may lose your mindfulness. When you get in your car and you think about the next place you have to be, you're already gone. It's very easy in this world we live in, from moment to moment, to lose our equanimity. So this monk had separated himself out from all of the things that might possibly upset him. And instead had separated himself from his very teachers. It's easy to be calm when you're by yourself, perhaps. But we live in relationship to everything. What are we going to do when somebody's on the road with us, beeping their horns or cutting us off? How are we going to respond to that? When we're in the store and someone's pushing or shoving to get around us, how are we going to respond to that? How are we going to understand that we are not separate from these people who are doing things to us. That's the way we view it. That person is cutting me off. So the fundamental delusion of the monk sitting up in the mountain was that he was still separate, somehow better. And when the second monk came along, he only had to do one little thing to push this man's buttons. So how deep was his practice really? So as I say, I came to practice expecting that I was going to get something. When in fact, I think, we're being asked to give something up. In fact, not just something, many things. If our true self is this little beating heart, then what happens to us as soon as we're conscious enough to understand it is a veil starts getting layered on top of that true beating heart. The first time you run out in the street and you scare your mother half to death, she yanks you back and tells you what a bad child you are. Well, good-bad gets set up right there. Dualistic mind right there. Going out in the street isn't a bad thing. It's just that your mother would like you to live to see adulthood. And you've scared her. And that's the way we respond. So right away, now you've got a veil of good and bad. And it just goes on from there. Until finally, you're practically inside of a cocoon. Your little beating heart, your Buddha mind, is still in there. But there are so many layers between you and it you forget it's there. You can't see clearly anymore. You're seeing through all these veils. So your perception of the world is not reality. Your perception of the world is your veils. Everything is screened through that. So what we're actually renouncing, what we're actually disowning, are the veils, the delusions, one by one. Because every time you do that, 
you have this experience of, oh, oh, now I see. Gosh, why didn't I see that before? What's happened is one of those veils has dropped away. And because of that, you see a little more clearly. And you wonder why you didn't see it before, but you couldn't because that veil was in front of you. That veil is delusion. That veil is ignorance. And everybody suffers from this. The amount of veils you have is equal to the amount of your suffering. And delusion is the hardest one. Sometimes it's a little easier to see our greediness or our anger, but it's very hard to see delusion. That's the nature of delusion. It's hard to look at it. So how do we do it? In a way, you might think that it's easier in that monastic or retreat environment because there aren't these distractions of daily life. You don't have to get in a car, so you don't have to deal with traffic or impatient people. You don't have your children yelling and screaming at each other or at you. You don't have to make very many choices. Usually in retreats, all those things have been taken care of. You know, your meal is there for you. The schedule is in place. There's not too many choices you have to make. But as you have already seen by the story I told of the two monks, it's still possible, quite possible, to delude yourself even in that environment. So we need to go back to the very last thing that the Buddha said in his life. He told his monks, please, forget everything I've ever told you. That's pretty amazing. He just spent, you know, 60 years teaching everybody everything, and then he says, forget everything. This is because he asked them to trust their own experience. In other words, even a Buddha telling you about delusion, explaining to you about dualism, about our fundamental ignorance of feeling separate, is still words. It's still the Buddha's experience. It's not yet yours. And when it becomes yours, then it goes very deeply and it goes right to that beating heart of your true self. So he understood this. He said, forget everything that I've taught you. Trust your own experience. Be a light unto yourself. You'll know. I trust you to know that. Really, what we all have to do is start right here with what we've got. <laughs> however imperfect we may think it is, how, however confusing our life seems to be, what other circumstances happen to arrive, that's why we're here. This is exactly the joy of our life. Well, gee, you know, hey, it ain't perfect, but this is what I've got. And the alternative is not to be here at all. Well, which do I want? Well, I think I'll try it with this one for a while. I've been given places to work. That's why I'm here. There are things for me to discover about my relationship with everything. We watch our mind. We watch our habit patterns. 
Zazen is where we do our observation and our reflection. Then we go out and through study and interaction with our world, we test what we've been observing. So we go out and we have an interaction with the family member that we always have difficulty with. And we try something new. Well, that one didn't work. So we go back to zazen, to meditation. We don't have to analyze it. We don't have to say, well, let's see, what would work better? It doesn't work that way. We just sit with it. We sit with our intention. I would like to find out where I get stuck. What is my delusion that is the difficulty that arises with this person? It is not this person. When we deeply understand our life, we understand it's not about anything out there. It looks like it sometimes, but it's not. It all is here. So what is it? Where is it that I get stuck? And we just have to, we don't have to think about it. We sit with that intention and we allow it just to be there. And if we just allow it to come up and we acknowledge it and then we let it go and then it'll come up again, eventually things will trickle down and something will arise that wasn't our own. This has happened so often to me. It, it always takes me by surprise, though, because when something arises, like, I could do this. Oh, I could, I could do that. But it's nothing that I would have thought of. So then I have to say to myself, so which mind did this come from? Did it come from my mind? It came from mind. That's about all you can say. But that is the beauty of taking this position, of allowing our mind to settle. We create a space for something to arise. One thing that we realize the longer we watch our mind is how often our thoughts come back to I. I this, I that, I want. I don't like. When you begin to see how often your thoughts come back to I, right there, there's a clue that you are feeling separation. This is our fundamental ignorance. Uh, the way Rebbe Anderson described it, I love this. He says, uh, we believe that there, there's whole, this whole universe plus something. And that something is me. Now, that really can't be true because each one of us thinks that, <laughs> okay? But that is the way we operate in the world, that there's this whole wide universe out there and then there's this little extra special thing, and that's me. And the way you know that you believe this is because all of this I keeps coming up into your thoughts. <laughs> I this, I that. Boy, the day I get rid of the I in my mind, I will be a happy person <laughs> because it's there. Watch it sometimes just to see how many thoughts are predicated by I. Now, the other part of renunciation, Catherine Thanis, who probably has been here to speak as well, wrote that 
Relinquishing the desire to be acknowledged is the practice of renunciation. How often do we do something? And there's this little part of us that expects gratitude, respect, recognition, maybe a little advancement if we're in our job, praise, at least agreement, and most of all, Love. We do a lot of things for love or the desire to be loved. Whether it's in the name of approval or praise or uh, affection, we'll do a lot of things for that one, one little word. And they are all based on our fundamental delusion, this one of being separate from everything else. I don't need your praise and you don't need mine if we're in it together. We fundamentally understand that we're all equal and one together. But if we don't believe that, then we will very naturally fall into comparing mind. We will want to be more special than somebody else. We will want to be smarter We will want to be more lovable. We will want to be nicer. Watch what it is for you. Because whatever that is for you, it is the desire. It It is your old hometown wanting to be separate when your true self really doesn't want to be separate. Your true self really wants to have that connection. And the really weird thing is that the more special you try to be in some way, the more separate you are from everybody else. Because what engenders, what happens in that case is jealousy arises on other people's parts, the desire to compete with you, the desire to better you, So not only do you have comparing mind of, oh, I'm so much better than so-and-so, but that brings up something in so-and-so. And you have created a huge split then. So part of renunciation is renouncing this need to have everything acknowledged. We just do it. We do it for its own sake. We do it because it's what's in front of us at this moment. And it's the right thing to do. So there's a story of this monk who learns how to make sandals, Japanese sandals, which are made out of straw. And because they're made out of straw, they don't last very long. But there are all these monks who go on pilgrimage. So he has his little spot by the side of the road. And he just spends, between meditation and making the sandals, he just spends all day making these sandals and then when it's the end of the day, he, the next morning, he takes all the sandals out, you know, one size fits all in this case, and he just lays them all by the side of the road because he knows that these monks who have been traveling a long way will be needing new sandals at some point. And every next day when he arrives, all the sandals are gone. Now, he isn't sitting out there by the roadside handing them out. 
because maybe he's worried that that'll bring up a desire in him to be thanked. And he doesn't want them to feel that they need to. In fact, he's divorced himself completely from the response. He just leaves the sandals out. And he knows that they must be going somewhere because they're always gone when he arrives the next day. Now, it could be that someone's got a great business going on the side and they're picking up all the sandals and going off and, you know, selling them. But he's not even worried about that. He just leaves the sandals every day. That's it. Now, you might think that this is just a story. But I've told, you know, this story. I just saw him again yesterday. (laughs) There's this man that you might have seen who rides his bike up Route 84 pretty much every day, as far as I can tell. And he's an an older man, very thin, white hair, must have legs of steel, because even I can't do 84 on a bicycle. And about a year ago, I began to notice him more and more. I mean, I think I had sort of seen him, but I really hadn't paid any attention. What I began to notice was, on the handles of his bike, he has these plastic bags. And... Every now and then he stops his bike and he gets off and he picks up some trash. He puts it in the plastic bag. Then he gets on his bike and on he goes. Well, then one day I'm at the corner where uh, Alice's restaurant is and those little stores because I live up in there. And I notice him there. And he's taking his full plastic bags, putting them in the garbage. And then from the back of his bicycle in the little container, he pulls out new plastic bags. And he puts them on the bicycle and takes off back down 84. So I realized that, you know, he's a one-man recycling team. I don't know this man's name. I've never seen anybody talking to him necessarily. And I don't think he cares whether anybody knows he does it or not. But I saw him again yesterday morning. He was at the bottom of 84, and he had three bags on the front of his bicycle. He was just whipping out a new one because the other two were already full, and he hadn't even started up the hill. So here's the man with the sandals. I think he'd be surprised. I mean, I really, yesterday I was very tempted to stop my car and say, I've been telling stories about you. Who are you? (laughs) But I don't think he cares. I think that probably it would surprise him to note that somebody had seen him and noted what he was doing because he's not doing it for me to think this is a wonderful thing or for you to praise him or he's doing it because clearly it's important to him. It's when he's riding up the hill, I could I could understand this. I would have to go very, very slowly and that would be what you would be looking at the whole way up is the garbage, right? And that's what's in front of him. So that's what he does without expecting anything. He's not expecting the town of Woodside to give him some little gold medal or a watch or something. He's just doing it. What an amazing thing in this world of ours to watch somebody just do what's in front of him because it's the right thing to do. That man is practicing renunciation. He doesn't think of it that way, I'm sure. I'm sure it it hasn't crossed his mind because if it had, then it wouldn't be renunciation, right? He has, in his deepest self, renounced any need for acknowledgement. So again, how do we do this? 
Well, when we're in meditation, we've been taught to come back to our breath. And then, of course, we stray away. What we're trying to figure out is where do we go? When we stray away, which we do every few seconds probably, where is it that we go? Then we return to the activity at hand, which is meditation. But then we get distracted by our desire or our aversion. And that little I starts coming up. Oh, I don't like that conversation I had with so-and-so yesterday. Or, gee, I'm really looking forward to that party I'm going to later on. So, this is what the brain does. It takes us away. Because it's a thinking machine. There's nothing wrong with that. But can we bring ourselves back? Can we renounce the going away at some point finally and come back to this moment right here that's in front of us? This moment in which we can experience our true home, our original dwelling place. Can we be really aware of the thoughts and feelings as they arise before they come out? I find it very interesting in the, um, the chant, which is a renunciation chant that takes place uh, during full moon ceremonies. It says, uh, All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. So I'm going to take complete responsibility for everything. But I find it very interesting. It says body, speech, and mind. It doesn't say body, hearing, and mind, or body, smelling, and mind, body, speech, and mind. Those three things... Body gesture, the way you turn away or turn towards, you know, giving someone the finger, this kind of, we do all kinds of things with our body. Just even seeing someone we really don't want to be, you know, just slightly turning away. Our body gives off every message. We would never have to open our mouth. And our mind what that chant is saying, that even the thoughts in your mind that do not take place are affecting things because, of course, they are affecting you. If I'm angry here, which I often am, it is affecting the way I'm being out here. So I, I have to be aware of it all the time. I have to watch the thoughts. And as Katagiri Roshi used to say, try and get to where, right where the thought is arising before it's even full-blown. Stop it there. But then there's speech. Speech is where maybe you haven't seen it arising and it comes blurting out. We do more damage with our speech than with the other two combined. The thoughtless word, the uh, words spoken uh, with the intent to hurt, the sarcasm, 
that's veiled in being funny. So body, speech, and mind. That's where we work. It's a lifetime practice. I'm sure you would all agree with this. Just to become aware of our old hometown behavior for each one of us. What is it that comes up for me? It took me years to realize. I really had to start watching very carefully that what comes up for me often are angry, irritated, judging, critical thoughts. And I go home and I see my mother do it. It's really clear. I grew up with this. It's not my mother's fault because her mother did it. And probably her mother before her and her father and, you know, ancient twisted karma. There's no point in blaming anybody here. Everybody suffers. But at some point, you have to say, yes, but it could stop in any moment. It could stop right here with me. Oh, this is the wonderful thing about karma. When you deeply understand the workings of karma, what you understand is karma actions take place in the past, but those actions are affecting the present. Those karmic ripples are affecting the present. You can't change what you did in the past, but if you are aware of what happened, you can move in the present. And it changes everything. You had an argument with your best friend a week ago. You can't undo the fact that you had the argument, but today, right in this moment, you can call your friend and say, boy, that was really a stupid thing to argue about. I'm so sorry. Everything changes. Karma can then release itself. But if both of you are stuck in, no, I was right, and you deserved it, then it just keeps playing on into the future. But in order for us to stop suffering, we have to know how it is we, each one of us, is suffering. So the mark of true renunciation is twofold. Acceptance on the one hand and generosity. We have to accept what Suzuki Roshi called things as it is. Suchness. Just this is it right here. Not what I want it to be. Because our suffering is the distance between those two things. What is and what we want it to be. Because this is what it is, and that's not going to change. So it means renouncing our desire for things to be the way we want them to be. It doesn't mean we don't work for change and social justice, but we have to accept what is first in order to know how to proceed. Now, the second part, generosity, someone who has truly in that state of renunciation, like this this man who bicycles up the hill. He is in a deep state of dana, of generosity. Because, first of all, he's taken what is given. There's garbage. And then he has decided to do something. 
without any expectation of reward, praise, acknowledgement. We give up what we want or think we need. And by doing that, we create a huge amount of space. I was talking to one of my students recently who, during a group discussion, had really lost her mindfulness and kept interrupting until finally another member who's got a short fuse yelled at her. So there was this, you know, big brouhaha for a few moments. And when I asked her about it later, she said, well, it was just that I was so enjoying myself. I said, hmm, do you hear what you're saying? You were enjoying yourself. True joy is actually wanting others to enjoy themselves. Our joy comes from, instead of always wanting to raise your hand or always wanting to put forth your opinion, asking others, well, how do you feel about this? Well, what do you think? It gives us great joy to start being inclusive. It creates, our generosity creates space. And what we begin to realize We've just let go of a whole other set of veils, which is the need to always be thinking about me. The main thing in renunciation is that we give up even the idea of renunciation, of home leaving. We give up this notion of being separate and apart from each other we understand in the same way that the Japanese do with their monks that there's no giver and no receiver. If we believe that we're the one who is giving to someone else, we've missed the point. And if we think that we can't be a receiver because we don't deserve it, we've missed the point. There's no you to give and no you to receive. The two things have to happen together. There is giving and receiving, but they're really just the the same thing from different points of view. So we even give up the thought of renunciation. We just stay with this moment that's in front of us, with this breath, with whatever comes up, no matter how slimy it looks. There's things I see about myself, I think, oh, God, But we don't run away from it. We don't go into aversion. We also don't sit there and go, oh, yes, that's a really wonderful part of me. (laughs) We don't go towards desire. We just accept what is, and then we step forward into the next moment. That is actually the home leaving that is required of each person when they sit down on their cushion. Thank you. Oh, okay. I don't know, it's a little bit late probably, but if somebody had a question. Yes.
What would his response be if, if all of a sudden somebody came and gave him this big medal or acknowledged him for what he had done, or on the other hand had come and then basically um, criticized him on how he had done it? He hadn't left the right sizes, he didn't leave enough, he you know, left them too late, you know, he missed the, you know, I mean, whatever. But, um, you know, I mean, what, what about that? In, because mm. I find that that's part of what comes with life. <laughs> no, <Okay>. really? <laughs> well, often, you know, doing something that you don't think about, that you do it because it seems right and for your personal integrity or whatever, you kind of perform this thing mm -hmm. and you move on. And then I'm just always startled by sometimes the reactions. Either people saying, oh, you know, you're incredible that you did this, or, you know, you didn't think about this, this, and this type mm -hmm. of thing. If you can take the criticism with the same degree of acceptance as you take the praise, no problem. The sandal maker, both things, it doesn't matter. It's not personal. Whatever somebody comes back to you with is theirs. It's not about you. Our problem is we take it all very personally. Oh, you don't like what I did? Well, I was trying to do a good job. Oh, people don't like what I did. Whereas instead, oh, well, I'm sorry they, you know, weren't what you wanted. That's all. Because the other person has not been able to accept the gift or has thought that the gift required something more. You know, thank you or praise or a medal or whatever it is. If you can accept both responses with equal equanimity, that's practicing renunciation. You just do what you do. You keep an eye on it all the time to make sure that you're not causing harm. I mean, that's really the bottom line. But if you're not causing harm in any way, you, and you're meeting the moment, that's your only requirement. But you're right, that's where we all get caught. Somebody comes back and says, well, I don't like the way you did this. Hey, I did my best. At the moment that I was doing it, I believe. Now, if you didn't do your best, that's something else entirely. But that is why when we are really present for this moment, we give it our complete right effort, doing your best, with absolutely no expectation. If you actually did your best and someone comes and criticizes you, there's no blame and there's no shame and there's no remorse. I did my best. Now, I will try to change this if this will please you, but I'm, I don't have to get involved in what happened back here. I did my best, unless you didn't, and then that's where you need to work. If you actually did a shoddy job and just, well, I just have to get my samples out today, huh? right? then you do have something to answer for. But that wasn't, that wasn't that monk's way. Whatever he did, he did slowly, he did carefully, and when he put them out, they were all the same. But there's always somebody who's going to come along and say, oh, no, this one's a quarter of an inch longer than that one. Right? I have as much trouble with the other side, too, though. Absolutely. So not to have trouble with either. You know, people who are excessive praisers, there's something there, too. There's something for them about that. It makes them feel like a nice person, perhaps. You know, it's not personal. You always, 
you always have to remember that that person is coming all their veils. They're coming through all of their veils. Maybe they have a need to be liked because there's a great fear that they're unlovable. So they're going to come and, and say all these nice things because they're going to hope that makes you like them more. You don't know. It's very complicated. But all you can do is, is figure out what this one here is going to respond. This one here should be able to stay in equanimity no matter what, which sounds very easy to do and is very difficult. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes? Well, you know, in, in Japanese, there's no word for I. It's roughly translated, watakshi means this one here. And, and so in the same way, it's in their language. It's very difficult in our language because everything is so I-oriented. And you're right, there's I and there's other, the object. It's very hard for us as Westerners to transcend that idea. It's very interesting, though. I didn't realize it was in that culture as well. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful to be here with all of you this morning.